Welcome back to What the Fertility. Today we have with us Paige Harden O'Brien, who is a full-time embryologist with the Kentucky Fertility Institute. Welcome, Paige. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you and ready to learn everything about embryology. How did you, embryologist is like such a specific niche. So how did you even get into this? Uh, I actually wasn't wanting to become an embryologist. I didn't know about an embryologist when I started school. I wanted to actually be a veterinarian like my entire life. So I was going for animal science. Um, I was doing my undergrad and my senior year, I'm I think it was actually my last semester, I took a reproduction class and I was like, oh my gosh, I love this yeah. um, did an internship. I asked, I was like, hey, is there any internships I could do? And they're like, yeah, but like, there's no pay. Like you just do it. And I was like, well, that's the, I need to figure out what I want to do with my life if I don't want to be a vet. And so I did this internship and my professor came out to me and said, hey, there's a competition. Uh, do you want to join it? and do a research project. So I started doing vitrification, that's freezing of eggs. And I did cow eggs and I did a couple other things with them and like survival rate. And then I eventually started doing fertilization with them, but I joined this competition and I ended up winning internationally first place. Wow. Uh, found out I had this natural talent, I guess. And um, how cool. Yeah. And so they offered me a master's program um, assistantship and so I, I kind of just kept following the doors that kept opening for me. And yeah. so I started doing that and I applied to a few jobs. I still was really interested in animals, especially like endangered species research. And there's not a lot of those jobs at all. And so I was applying to here and there and uh, embryologists came up and it looked really interesting. And I was like, well, I could try this for a few years, see if I like working with humans. Um, you know, animals are, they don't really talk. They just talk to you. That's awesome. I guess in the lab a bit. Wait, so that's so interesting to me. And I think, I, I hope I know the answer to this, but like in terms of freezing cow eggs, right? Is that mm -hmm. solely for research or is there any type of reproductive for oh my gosh, fertilization with so animals? So cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you think about it, like we want the best of the best. We want the best milk. We want the best meat. We want marbling. We don't want too much fat. We want tenderness. So we are breeding towards a specific want and need. And so, yes, a whole bunch of artificial wow. insemination with cows, um, with horses, like racing horses, uh, not for the Derby. Cause I don't, you're not allowed to, um, but yes, I mean, hundred percent, we do this. Wow. That is insane. I never even knew that existed. Like that yeah. was a world out there. That's so cool. Okay. So I guess when I started doing some research into like, what does the embryologist do? My very first like, whoa moment was when I realized that you guys are the ones that actually extract the egg from the follicle. Is that right? So it may go from like lab to lab, but our, our doctor does that in our, okay. so he's actually in the OR with the aspirator and he aspirates out of the follicle and he hands us the tubes with the, the follicular fluid and the oocytes and we oh. search the microscope for them. 
Okay. So, and I know you have a, like your social media page for embryology is so informative. I tried to kind of go through a lot of your slides because it shows kind of like what the path looks like from when you get the egg to when you really, I guess my question is, so like from fertilization, right? What mm -hmm. does that process look like for the egg from not fertilization from the egg retrieval all the way till when it's put back in the catheter to go back into the uterus for a transfer? What does that like yeah. journey of the egg look like? <laughs> yeah, it is, it's a pretty long journey. I mean, long. Um, so of course we stem the female. So from retrieval day, no, no. Um, we aspirate each follicle big and small because we don't want bloating anymore. We don't want discomfort for the patients. Um, so the small follicles obviously are going to be the immature oocytes. The larger follicles are the mature oocytes. So after we find them, because we, we put them in a big dish, we pour all the follicular fluid and we actually have to find the egg under the microscope. And what's nice about humans, especially is they kind of glow They're They glow white under the microscope. So you can see them really easily. So compared to cows, for instance, that I used to do, um, they don't glow. And so it's, it's very nice. So you can just find them real yeah. sitting there nice and pretty. Um, and so after that, we put them in another media. So everything you switch medias, um, probably at every single step and you have to wash them in between before you put them into a new media. And so you put them in there, then they go in the incubator and they're just going to hang out. We want them to rest, relax. They just went through a whole bunch of trauma being removed from the ovary and they'll sit there probably about two to three hours. I mean, max probably would be four before we go ahead and strip or denude them. And that, this is, um, for ICSI though. So intracytoplasmic injection. Yes. If it's conventional, we leave this cumulus cells around them. So there's two different kinds of fertilization from there. So after we go ahead and strip them, if we're doing ICSI, um, it's removing cells. So we put them in different media. It helps relax them. And so they can strip off and then they kind of hang out again. Cause once again, it was a little traumatic for them. So we kind of let them hang out for another hour or so before we actually go ahead and inject them with the sperm after injection that takes, depends on how many oocytes there are. It could take from 10 minutes to hours. They'll just kind of hang out in the incubator and we check on them. We, in our, every lab is going to be different. So we don't check on them until day four. So if you're doing genetic testing, we go ahead and hatch them on day four. If you're not doing genetic testing, we, they hang out until day five and day six when they're actually becoming a blastocyst. And then we can do the genetic testing then and or freeze them. And then they hang out until they're ready to be transferred. Wow. That's amazing. There's so many like little questions I kind of want to ask along yeah. the way. So, I feel like I was giving too much information, no. but then I was like, I know they're going to have a hundred questions about each step yes. I just went over. No, that's amazing. So one of, we did the Q and a yesterday on the Instagram and you had like so many questions and I know I sent them to you before. You're like, Oh, these are super easy, um, I know, <laughs> which is amazing. Um, so one of the girls asked, and I think it's kind of in line with what you just said, when you're moving from media to media all the time. Um, how, what protocols are in place so that like the specific patient sample does not get mixed up with somebody else's? Yeah. So we only work on one patient at a time. First of all, we're never going to have multiple patients out at once. Um, so we like in our lab, for instance, cause once again, everyone's different because there are certain witnessing systems. They can have like this little controller that you scan a code on and it makes you witness like 
by a computer. Um, we are not that fancy just yet. Um, so we have our chart, we pull out our patient, everything is double labeled. So you have the patient's name and their medical number on them. So it'll be on the side of the dish, on the top of the dish, on top of the incubator that they're in. And then you have to sign off. So I take the dish out of the incubator. I go to strip. I write their name down, the medical code number, and then the time I'm doing this and my initials. And then I put them back in the incubator with their name on it. And for me personally, I find myself, I say it that loud. So I'll be like, all right, I'm going to go get Jane Doe. And I'll be like, Jane Doe, Jane Doe. Jane Doe. And I say it probably like four or five times as oh, I'm yeah. walking with Jane Doe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and now it's just a habit. I say their name so often. Um, but every single step will have those things, the, the patient's name, the medical code number, you'll have to check it off at each point. So when I remove it out of the incubator, when we strip them before we do ICSI and on the ICSI or the conventional fertilization step, we do that for the female. And then of course, when we take the sperm out as well, we have to confirm name, medical code number, all of that. And then we have a double witnessing. So my other embryologist will come in and confirm the sperm for me and confirm like, yes, you can Go ahead and inject yeah. or sprinkle that sperm on top of those eggs. So yeah. mm -hmm. that's great. That's uh, reassuring for sure. Cause I know for everyone going through this process, that could be such a scary thing or, or you know, mm -hmm. giving you anxiety if that did happen or anything like that. Yeah. So that's great. There's a lot of trust definitely that's needed for us in the lab because there are little, there's little steps that Oh, yeah. Anybody can mess up. And even like whenever the guy comes in to collect his sample or if he's dropping it off, there's there's all of those checkpoints too. Like we check the driver's license. We want to make sure that matches up with the label that's going to be on the cup. And then we mm -hmm. have him check the label on the cup to confirm that's him. And so it just every single step, there's checks, checks, checks. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. Could you, so I know you like quickly mentioned, so every clinic is different as opposed to you guys start day four. So I know for me, when I went through it, we started like a day three update. We had a day five update, six and seven. So could you just kind of like walk us through what you're even looking at on those update yeah. days? So we used to actually check on day three. We probably in the last year stopped because it's just for us personally, it's you're going in and out of the incubator. So your pH is going to change every time you take them out and your temperature is going to change every single time you take them out. So the, the amount of time you can leave them alone and let them do their own thing is best. We're trying okay. to mimic the female reproductive tract. Um, and they probably for day three checks in your lab, they, they probably hatch then if you're doing genetic testing then. And so we yeah. always did it on day four. And so that's why we were like, we don't need day three if we're taking them out on day four anyway. But day one, so day zero is your retrieval. Day one is your fertilization check. So we want to look for pronuclei. That's the male and the female pronucleus. It's showing us that they came together and fertilized normally. And you also see the polar bodies as well, indicating fertilization. Um, and sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes you miss that window because there is a specific window of fertilization when it occurs because those pronuclei will actually be reabsorbed. And so if I check it outside of that window, they may not be there. Or before that window, they might not be there. Um, day three, they're checking on development, dividing. They want to make sure that they're at a certain stage at this point. So they'll be around an eight cell. That would be optimal is eight cell and then uniformity of the cell sizes. So you would want, if one cell is this big, you would want them all to be this big. You wouldn't want one this big and one this big. It's showing um, uh, not uniform. 
form of development. And that's not, and that was also another, sorry, my dog's about to bark. No, you're good. This is my husband's home with the groceries. Well, that's, that's so interesting. You said that about the polar bodies. Cause that's actually what happened to me. And my physician was trying to explain it. He's like, I don't see it, but it looks like it was there. And I might've just mm-hmm. missed it by a couple hours. So I feel reassured that you've said that at this point. There is other things that we can see when they've fertilized without the pronuclei. Um, and I am just learning how to see this. My lab director has been doing this for 20 plus years. And so he has much better eyes for it, but there's like a certain clearing on the edge of the oocyte um, that kind of is an in like indicator of fertilization. So pronuclei, I mean, you can't go wrong. You see it, they're fertilized, but, and there's also going to be a space as well within the zona and the oocyte um, that would also indicate that the polar body was there. So it is, that's why we, most of the time, if they haven't fertilized um, and there's a decent amount, we don't discard them. Like, for our lab personally, like we'll put them in just a d- different dish or a different um, well to watch them. Cause if they start dividing it and they're doing genetic testing anyway, it's like, well, they look good on day five or day six or even day seven. Why not go ahead and test them? And if they're normal, then we'll just put a star next to them last transfer um, and go from there. Okay. Um, so telling, oh, sorry, Kat, you can go. No, the day go three. Ahead, yeah. No, I was just going to say, so at this point, cause I know for- for me, it was so, that whole week is just so nerve wracking mm-hmm. and you really have no idea what half the things mean. I know I didn't, um, of what the embryologist was kind of explaining to me. So are you guys telling, say that day three update, are you saying like, Hey, you may have some that potentially might be fertilized. Or are you just telling them that number that is fertilized? I just want to kind of, for people that, you know, are just starting out and don't really yeah. know what so that would be on day one. And yeah, we, we, we just tell them you've had six out of nine that have fertilized. I'm not going to tell them about those other three. And if they do, they're like, what happened to the other three? They, they didn't fertilize or they were atretic and didn't survive the process. Okay. And yeah. it'd be one or the other, or, or they could even have like multiple pronuclei, like, oh, it, it fertilized abnormally. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it, ha- it would have like one or three, or even some instances like five. And that's definitely a huge indicator of oocyte um, abnormalities. So something mm-hmm. is funky happening with the eggs. Um, and that kind of helps us with, especially with people who are infertile and don't know why they can't get pregnant by themselves. Yeah. We can see kind of behind the scenes of what's happening. Not all the time, but in some cases it does help us. So I want to just jump in there because so for me and Paige, I don't know if you know this, but for me, my husband and I have gotten pregnant five times naturally and we've actually on our own, never not gotten pregnant. Like, is that, wow. does that make sense? Yeah. So every time we've attempted, we've created an embryo theoretically, right? We've had to create an embryo to get the HCG. Yeah. Um, however, when we went through our one and only round of IVF, they only got nine mature eggs, which was like disappointing in the first place. Cause I don't have like a low follicle count, but, um, then only five of those were mature. And I only, only ended up with one embryo even before PGT testing. So for yeah. me, in my mind, and you might not even be able to answer this, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, so I have a hundred percent fertilization rate naturally. And I heard you earlier mention like the trauma, like of the, of the egg or oocyte of it just like kind of moving around. What are your thoughts on that from like that, outcome of IVF versus like our natural experience. 
Yeah, that is, I mean, that is strange and different. You don't normally hear people that are able to get pregnant that many times and still have to go through IVF. Um, but it is hard to say because there, of course, there's always going to be some kind of influence by our hands when we're touching the, the reproductive tract or just the body in general. So um, that could have some influence. Um, it's hard to say when people only go through one cycle, because mm-hmm. whenever I can start comparing cycles to cycles, it's significantly easier, especially because you did get nine, your AMH, I, I mean, assuming it was within a decent yeah, range. It's decent. Um, it was like 1.8 and I'm 31. Okay. Yeah. So Mine was 1.5. Like, so like, yeah, it, it's it wasn't like a factor <laughs> Amanda. for us though. Like obviously IVF was suggested just because we've had so many losses, but what's, and he wanted to do the PGT testing. Right. Um, so for me, I am sorry to kind of go on a tangent, but we've tested three of the six pregnancies and all three were genetically normal. So it's just so confusing. And I would just figure mm-hmm. like, maybe you would have an opinion, but we are going to do a second cycle. So maybe I'll reach out to you at that point. <laughs> Yeah. And see if he could change like, and I hate like telling people to do things, tell, tell your doctor. Cause I hate when people come in there like, so this one person told me and like, and told my doctor to do this. But like, of course, if you change different things during your STEM, you'll of course get a different amount of oocytes. So and your doctor probably will change something to help increase that count that you're going to get on the front end and then hopefully increase the maturity on that back end. Um, we only stemmed for eight days, which I felt was really short because Amanda, you stemmed for what? 14. Isn't that like the average amount of time? I think I stemmed only 11, 11, 12, like 11 or 12, um, days. So definitely not eight. Um, I think my second one was longer than my first cycle. Yeah things up and I yeah we like well anyways to get back on track (laughs) um Paige I heard you mention how sometimes you guys aren't checking on day three because you're kind of pulling it in and out of its environment somebody and I don't remember who shared this with me are you familiar with like the new technology or like a new incubator where you can like leave everything as in but you can actually monitor it externally have you heard of anything like that yeah so they do have cameras that connects to the incubator and you can watch them um I don't know if it's if it's real time if like you have to disconnect the camera and connect it to the computer and then see it afterwards or if it is just cooked up to a computer and you could just play it live um but no I don't know much about that we we haven't kind of touched into that right now yeah but that'd be cool. So we didn't have to touch them at all, but you do still need to remove them to hatch. Okay. So like you would have to still put them under the microscope and use the laser to hatch them for like genetic testing. I think that goes right into our next question too, just kind of about embryo hatching and, um, kind of how that influences the transfer success. So mine was hatched and now that you're talking, I'm like, did they artificially do that? I don't know. Cause we were, we agreed. most likely. Yeah. That's so, I had no idea that you could even artificially hatch it. I just assumed that it hatched. So when does it normally hatch? Like between day five or that's when you do it on day four. So they would, so sometimes I have them hatching on day four. Most of the time, like if I'm not doing genetic testing, they're hatching or starting to hatch on day five, 
to day six. And of course, as they get bigger, they'll hatch on their own. They're running out of room. And that's whenever they start hatching. We go ahead and artificially like assisted hatch them on day four. So we, they give them about 12 hours to come out of their shell. So the genetic, the biopsy process is significantly easier for us and nicer on the embryo because we are, once again, we're removing cells. We're using a laser. Um, and I believe most places are still using lasers. There's different techniques of doing the biopsy process, but mm-hmm. Is there, so I know that there's obviously different success rates. I know for us, when we went through it, they wanted to see more like our embryos make it to blast um, by like day five or six, day seven. Can you tell us a little bit about like success rates or really like the difference between day five, day six, day seven? Yeah. Um, so we always prefer day five and day six embryos just because research has shown us that they have a higher implantation rate versus day seven embryos. So day five, of course, is optimal. Um, the difference between day five and day six is about a 5% implantation difference. So nothing significant. Um, day sevens do drop about 60% of implantation rate compared to day five and day sixes. It is significant. But what I tell my patients when they have day seven embryos, or only one day six, and they're mostly developing on day seven, is that 40% implantation rate is 40% higher than a zero implantation rate of not having an embryo. So I would much rather transfer a day seven embryo than no embryo at all, and at least give us a chance of getting you pregnant. Do you feel like you've seen with day seven, since it's a little slower to grow, that there's more of a chance of it becoming, if they are PGS tested, that they're abnormal? Yes. Like, would, there's a link there yeah. Yeah. I would say that there is a higher rate of aneuploid with day sevens versus day fives and day sixes. Yeah. Okay. So that was another Q and A from the group of just asking, um, kind of around the PGT testing. So I know, and maybe you can kind of go into, I think all clinics are different, but how embryos are graded, right? Like Like mine was like a five AA, which I was so thrilled about, but then we did the genetic testing and they're like, oh, well, if you do PGT testing, your grading kind of goes away. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So somebody asked on the Instagram story, they kind of were just curious, like how does the PGT correlate really to the grading of the embryos or is it just a wash at that point? Yeah. So It sucks, but it's a wash. I can have a gorgeous embryo and it can be abnormal. There is no indication that an ugly embryo is going to be abnormal. So, um, but like you said, every lab grades differently. So most labs kind of do one through five. We do one through three in our lab. Um, It just is, that's talking about expansion. So how big the embryo has gotten. So that's the thickness of the zona that's around the oocyte. I mean, the embryo, excuse me, um, or if it's completely hatched. So some labs like a five would be completely hatched out of it. But I think I saw your picture on Instagram and it was hatching. Like it was yes. beautiful. It was like a perfect eight. Um, so once again, every lab's different. So ours is just expansion, right? It yeah. doesn't mean good or bad. It tells us when to thaw the embryo before the transfer. And then Ooh. the first grade, and every lab's the same here, is for the inner cell mass, and that will become the baby itself eventually. And then the trophectorum is the second grade, and that's going to become the placenta. And so most labs do grade A, B, or C. 
Um, some may take that a little further. Some are a little bit more harsh than others because I've had patients come in and be like, oh, my embryologist says they never give grade A's. They're a grade B place. Like A, it has to be like top, top, top. We majority of them give A's. Like if it's a nice embryo that looks like a nice compacted tight group of cells for the inner cell mass, that's an A. It's a little looser. There's not as many cells. We, we even give minuses sometimes because we're like, ah, it's not a B exactly to us, but maybe an A minus. So it's really for the embryologist to have those grades so we can make the best decision on the thawing and which one to transfer first if they're not genetically tested. So it gives us an insight like, nope, I obviously gave this one an A and this one an A minus. Let me transfer this one before I do this one because better chances. That's so okay. interesting. Yeah. So that's why I, I tell most of my patients, like when they're like, well, I looked it up and I was like, <laughs> rolling my eyes, you know how that's anyone in the profession, yeah, yeah it, it, everyone does. That's the thing. And I'm always like, don't do that. Like, because you're going to get yourself down a rabbit hole and then you're going to be all stressed. Cause I had somebody come in and they go, well, mine was graded at two AA and I saw that grade one through five. Like, why isn't mine in a five? And I was like, because we don't go to five. And they're like, oh, I'm like, so you just stressed probably for how many hours Oh, for sure. <laughs> so it's like, it's okay. We promise as embryologists, we will only freeze and transfer embryos that we think will result in a positive pregnancy. Cause I've gone to many patients before transfer. And I said, Hey, this embryo does not look good. It did not thaw well. Something didn't happen. Right. And I was like, we can transfer it, but it has this much viability now. So like, we're going to be very open upfront with you. We're never going to try to keep secrets. Um, and we're, your best interest is always our front most. Yeah, no, of course. I know for us, we, um, had great for some of them, great gradings on the front end, and then they were sent out and then every single one was abnormal every single time. So, I mean, you just honestly don't know. So that's so crazy though that it I mean it is and it stinks because I'm like all of these were beautiful like oh and you get so excited because like of course you're like oh I have you know the five AA or three A or whatever it may be and then they can come back abnormal still so that's frustrating yeah it is hard because like grading doesn't matter with genetic tests or your genetics like so people are like well what are the percentage like mine are coming come back euploid and I was like I I could pull a number out for you, but it's not going to be real. Like, I don't know. I don't know you and your, your partner. So are you and your donor or so it stinks because it's a science, but not an exact science. But that must be so hard, even as the embryologist to have those hard conversations. Like I can't even imagine being like calling, especially like when we and Kat, like if you get that call and they're like, sorry, there's none, or you only have this amount or everything's abnormal. I mean, that must be so hard on your end too which we don't think about, you know, but. And that's what a lot of people ask me. They're like, you must love your job. It must be amazing. I was like, it is amazing, but it's a complete roller coaster ride of emotions. So, and it's of course, significantly more for our patients, but it's just like, you fall in love with certain patients, of course. And it's just, it hurts you. You're like, especially if like they're pregnant and then it's, they, they're not anymore. Like that is always the worst. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause we're kind of talking about, I guess we're talking about testing. I kind of wanted to get into the gender. So this might not be true. This is what I've heard. Does the sperm or the egg determine the gender of the embryo? So research has shown that sperm does 
that's had indicated. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that's interesting, like historically, right? Like just in history when men are always like, oh, you didn't give me a boy or you didn't oh, give, yeah. give me you a girl. But I did see that somewhere and someone mentioned it's actually the sperm. Um, right. Yeah. So like kind of getting into the sperm, I don't have experience with male infertility as an embryologist. Does that look different for you when, if a male has like male factor infertility and they go through that? And I don't know if you can even speak to it, like the surgical procedure to get the sperm. Does that look different for how you do things in the lab or not necessarily Yeah. So on the front end, yes. So, well, how we prep the sperm is going to be significantly different if it's like a fresh ejaculate that's easy and modal. And even if it's actually not the greatest sample, but if it's a fresh ejaculate, it's significantly easier to use um, and to fertilize. So that, that process of testicular tissue aspiration or extraction, um, we're removing it from the testes in a certain area where they may not be ready to fertilize. So think of it as a, um, a production line. So sperm aren't just like there. They're not just ready like, oh, I'm here, let's fertilize. They start off as an individual cell, like any other cell. And so, and it has to grow and get bigger and it gets the ability to actually move um, and to fertilize normally as it goes through this production line. When we're removing this testicular tissue, we're removing a section of that production line and we're trying to find sperm in there. So you're gonna have those individual cells. You're gonna have them halfway between. You're gonna have them with short tails or big heads or they're not, they're not all of them aren't gonna be ready to fertilize. And you can't see that completely under a microscope. I can't see inside that nucleus and say, oh, all of it's there it's hundred percent ready to go and make a pronuclei in an embryo with this egg. And so when we are looking through testicular tissue to find which ones to go ahead and inject, because you could only do ICSI with testicular tissue. You cannot do conventional because they're not going to be able to be swimming like normal ejaculated sperm. A lot of people don't know that. Um, so we're searching for sperm that are moving. So sometimes they're swimming and that's great. You're like, I want that one. Um, some of them are just twitching. So you're like, you're alive. Uh, And so that's what we're looking for is viability and motility. And also you, we do want a good morphologically good looking sperm as well. So I don't want a giant head. It's not going to fit through my needle. I don't want an abnormal mid piece, even though it has nothing to do with the fertilization process, but it's showing me something that was abnormal with it. Um, But with testicular sperm, it's really hard to find a morphologically good looking sperm to inject so it can take us hours to find sperm. So for like a regular ICSI that take for um, ejaculated sperm, it could take me a minute. It could take me like 10 seconds to a minute to find a good sperm to inject. For testicular tissue, we've sat there for hours, like plural hours, looking for five sperm to inject. And so, and it just depends on the guy and his case and his production level and things like that. Um, I mean, my lab director sat for eight and a half hours finding 15 sperm. Wow. And yes, so I and actually didn't end I up just, with anything. Oh, really? I just had well, a friend. Because the fertilization so low from these sperm. Yeah. So I just had a friend who her husband did that portion of it for IVF. And 
they got pregnant first try and everything's great and it's amazing. So I was just kind of curious because we didn't go through that. I was really curious of what like he had to go through. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of women, you know, suffer with the male factor and fertility. So I guess that's like, that's probably the most, the best example of when the male plays a really big part in the IVF. um, Yeah. And there's two different kinds of procedures they can go through. So um, there's the extraction or the aspiration. So the aspiration one, you mostly get like the modal sperm from it's kind of, you just go into the exam room. The urologist is going to put more or less a needle into the scrotum and, and aspirate up and pull and he'll remove a little piece of tissue. The extraction is when he goes into the OR and we actually completely open up the scrotum and the, um, the testicle and look for filled looking seminiferous tubules. Um, they're kind of like, just like little spaghetti worms and the fatter they are, it normally indicates that there's sperm in there. So he's going to remove those pieces. And most of the time there's an embryologist there in the OR and even during the other procedure as well, just in a different room. And we go through and we kind of shred the tissue up and we look under the microscope. And if we see a sperm, we're like, okay, we'll take this piece. Yes, we, there's sperm in here. Um, so it is a very lengthy process before even getting to the retrieval part um, on the embryologist side and the male side, because he has to go through that procedure. And we actually have to find the sperm, freeze the tissue, and then bring it back, put in the liquid nitrogen tank. And then for the retrieval day, we actually have to thaw it and prep it a completely different way and get it prepared hours beforehand instead of one hour beforehand because we want to make sure we have sperm and hopefully they're moving so they fertilize better wow i did not know all that that is um i'm gonna make <laughs> sure, my husband listen. yeah i'm gonna make my husband listen to this episode <laughs> yeah, uh, when i come home my husband i'm like we saw this procedure and i told him one time i was like it's like you filleted it open he's like don't say that ever again to me. And I'm like, he like, opened it open. Like it was like a butterfly. And he's like, please, please. <laughs> oh my goodness. I know that's just like not talked about in IVF in general. So thanks for I kind of ex- no idea. Any of that. That's in- yeah. so crazy and so helpful. I mean, so many people I know have said that they have the male factor part of infertility. And, so that's- and that could, it doesn't have to be just those two things that are male factor. Um, it could just be low sperm count that they couldn't do like IUI and they had to go through IVF and it was so low that they couldn't do conventional. They had to do ICSI. Um, or it could be even like you had male factor and didn't have to go through IVF and he just had to have a procedure done beforehand. So there's the list goes on and on for male infertility, um, and different routes you could actually go with it. So And can we break down, because I know the three of us are super familiar with ICSI, but can we just break it down of like what that is compared to just like the conventional fertilization? Because I, for me, I think, is it, is it a, a newer standard over several years? Is that kind of like, I know my a clinic, newer? Uh, like a newer standard. So my clinic only does ICSI. They won't even, they don't do right. anything else. So could you explain that to us a little bit? Yeah. And a lot of labs are like that. They're just straight ICSI because you, you can guarantee that that sperm's going to get into that egg. There's no if, ands, and buts. Um, so because for ICSI, it's intercytoplasmic sperm insemination. And so we're going to remove one, we're going to pick one sperm and I'm going to pick it up with my needle, one little bitty sperm, and I'm going to inject it directly into that oocyte. Um, I do have a couple of posts on that as well about like 
where, how, when we inject, because it's not as easy as black and white, I'll take the sperm and inject it. You have to think about how you're injecting it, where you're injecting it, what time of day you're injecting it, because you do have that fertilization window. Um, but with conventional, I'm literally going to do, I'm going to look at the sperm, I'm going to do some math to add it up to, because I want exactly 150 million per mil in my dish with a certain amount of oocytes. And they're going to keep that cumulus cell mass on there because it helps with communication between the sperm and the um, oocyte and development. So we're going to keep that big mass around there. That sperm is just going to swim. All of the sperm are going to swim because there's going to be a crap ton millions um, <laughs> swimming. And it's kind of more natural like because the sperm gets to, or yeah, they get to decide who's going to inseminate that oocyte. And we kind of just let them do their thing. So you sprinkle it on top, you put it in the incubator, you don't know what's going to happen until the next morning when you denude and look for those two pronuclei. That's so neat. So at your clinic, you do both, it sounds like. Yes. Well, we do majority ICSI, but we do have those patients that per a, um, ASRM's guidelines qualifies for conventional and they are the guidelines that most labs follow. Um, and so we kind of just, if, if the sperm's good, her eggs look good, there should be no question that conventional shouldn't work. Um, but what is conventional? Like what are those guidelines? I'm sorry. Um, so it, it, there's a decent amount of guidelines to follow for them to see. Um, I don't want to just name a few and then not have the rest. So we can definitely look it up on ASRM's guidelines to get the full amount. But more or less is I need a certain amount of sperm. I need them a certain amount of motility. The morphology needs to be high on them. Um, her a um, AMH should be a decent amount. I should have a decent amount of follicles and mature oocytes. Well, I won't know the maturity, but the follicle size should be an indicator yeah. of maturity. But things like that. So Good. I asked only because we did conventional and I, that's just interesting. Cause I feel my AMH is so low. So that's so interesting, yeah. but I'm, uh, there's other factors. Too. How many oocytes but did you get? I had, well, I did different rounds, but I had five eggs and five eggs and then four retreat or four fertilized. And then we had three embryos from it. Yeah. And like I said, every lab's different. So like for our lab, for instance, like we would probably have never done conventional for five oocytes. Yeah. We would, we'd be like, oh, that's too low. I don't want to chance it. I want to make sure that sperm gets into that egg. Yeah. So, but there's, once again, the guidelines might have indicated, no, she's a, a contender for a conventional. But yeah. we, everyone, it's a guideline. So yeah. we'll only do conventional if you have 15 or more retrieved. Um, and we don't do full conventional anymore. We will always do a split. So. I've heard, yeah, I've heard that as well. So like, say you had... I know you said 15. So just for my math, my head, if you had 20, you would do like 10 ICSI and 10 conventional. Is that what, when you say, well, we actually don't even do 50%. We conventional, um, has not been kind to our lab. So we try to kind of go on the side of ICSI. So we would do probably a third conventional and then the rest ICSI, um, just because like we said, we were guaranteeing it. And if, in my mindset, how I think of it as, um, well, this is, we're going to do conventional. This female obviously is not getting pregnant naturally and that's what's happening naturally. So something else is going on. Mm -hmm. So, and most of the time when they don't come back fertilized from being conventionally fertilized, um, 
we're like, well, that's why she's not getting pregnant naturally. Obviously there's something going on. There's no correlation between the two. And when we actually inject them too, it helps activate. There's an activation process that happens with fertilization. And so sometimes the sperm and the egg don't communicate that when they do it conventionally. And so the poking process of that needle helps that activation click. And they're like, oh, I'm fertilized. Let me start developing. And so that's another plus of ICSI. Okay. You just reminded me of one of the other questions from Instagram. Someone asked, and I don't know if there's an answer to this or not, but someone said, if you get no blast, right? So say you go through the whole process and you get no blastocytes, can an embryologist determine number one, why? And number two, if it was an egg issue or if it was a sperm issue, or is it just kind of yeah, it's, that's probably the main question I get asked when people have a failed uh, retrieval. Um, it's hard to say. Most of the time, though, um, if they fertilized and they started developing and they didn't make it to a blast, it's mostly an oocyte issue. Um, the sperm kind of does the fertilization process mainly. I mean, they're both a team at that point when they're an embryo, but mainly it'd be a oocyte thing going on for the development. Um, but we can't, there's no way for us to know exactly why or what happened. Um, when it does happen, we always do compare as an embryologist, we freak out. What did we do? What happened in the lab? Um, was the incubator warm? Was this, so we compare to other patients that are in the incubator at the same time. How did this person develop? How do they look? You know, things like that. Oh, but that's um, so reassuring as a yeah. patient. That's really reassuring to hear. Oh, I mean, if your patient fails, you fail. So it's, and of course the doctor's like, what happened? And so you're trying to like figure out what did happen, what, yeah. or it was just, just what would normally happen. And that's an explanation of their infertility. You know, they can obviously get pregnant, like how you were five, yeah. five times. They can obviously get pregnant. They get a certain point that they are saying they're pregnant. And then the development is just so poor that they can't stay pregnant. And that's the issue is the development. Um, but it's not a hundred percent. It's just us guessing and trying to navigate and figure it out. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're kind of nearing our hour mark here. So I wanted to ask like a few little questions, just like about your job. Like what is your favorite part of being an embryologist? <sighs> Seeing those babies. <laughs> um, definitely the positivity, right? Um, me and my lab director, our favorite thing to do is we go to our, we have a piece of paper that we write all the patients' names down and their retrievals um, and just looking in the computer and checking their HEG number and seeing it increase. And, um, but yeah, that's for sure. I mean, hands down, the best part is getting someone pregnant and then staying pregnant. So, and then we have a baby reunion every year. So seeing them is like, oh, I knew so you when you were five days. Yeah, it is very that's cool. Adorable. I know I've seen, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you've seen them like on Etsy or anything, but the little like onesies that say my first babysitter was like an embryologist. Embryologist. Yeah. yeah. So cute. It's so cute. And I love it so much. They're always like my babysitter or like, I've had a few babies that have come in like screaming, crying to visit us and like, I'll hold the baby and they like, shut up. And they're like, they remember you. And you know, <laughs> they don't, but I'm like, yep. They know yeah, this they voice. Know. I, I've been singing Taylor Swift to them their entire 
development or whatever, you know. Oh my gosh, that's so cute. Well, Amanda, before we kind of close out, do you have any additional questions or did we miss any of the Q&A questions? I think we tried to touch on the majority. I think we covered, yeah, I think we covered pretty much mostly everything, you know, everyone asked. Um, if you have any like crazy short like lab stories that you're wanting, willing to share with us, I think that could be fun. But I mean, I don't know if you have any stories willing to share. I don't know. I'll put on the spot, of course, Amanda. <laughs> um, I don't know. I probably do, to be honest with you. I probably have some crazy stories, um, but I can't think of any. Of course, no, all like the bad stories that I don't want anyone to know is like. Well, exactly. I know. Like, no, not that one. <laughs> well, I guess instead of that, so you have a you have an entire Instagram account dedicated to embryology, correct? Yes. Will you kind of link that here? Will you sh- share what that is so that if people want to learn more or I remember you mentioned something like oh the sperm looks like spaghetti noodles and I saw you posted a picture like that on your Instagram I'm like oh that's what that was right yeah yeah so it's I think it's embryologist underscore page um but I try to kind of touch base on things that happen in the lab because we have so many patients that are they're they're in the dark they come in they're scared they're nervous um they're going through this IVF process they never thought they were going to have to go through um Mm -hmm. and they're completely trusting um these nurses these doctors and these embryologists to kind of take care of their future family and to go through it and uh I started this page because I would talk to patients and they'd be like they would ask me all these questions and it was it was kind of like duh to me like I'm doing it every day of course it's a duh to me like that you don't know, like you're an expert in your profession because you're doing it every day. If I asked you what you were doing, you'd be like, it's so simple. I would not know it. Um, and so to kind of give patients and just the public some more information exactly behind the scenes without going into too much detail that would confuse them um, was like a duh moment for me. Like, of course they don't know this fertilization. Of course they're scared and they don't know why their number went from 16 to seven. Um, let's explain why. So they're not just trusting this person that's on the other end of the phone to give them a number and then just be like, all right, I guess I'll have to take what you say because yep. there's something else I can do. Um, but it, it helps me because I explain to my patients in detail everything. And I know a lot of clinics and it's not their fault. I mean, we're extremely busy, um, don't or can't. And so this is kind of an insight for patients to be able to be like, that's what they were talking about. That makes so much sense now because I'm seeing it in detail and pictures of what the embryologist is seeing. Um, so it makes me feel better that I could help patients feel a little bit better about going through this process and completely trusting us with their future families. Yeah. Well, as a patient, before I had ever met you, I sent you my, (laughs) I sent you a picture of my, like my embryo. And I was like, does this look good? I don't know what to do. Does this look good? Um, no, you were so sweet. You responded. Okay, good. I'm like, I hope I was nice. Um, and it gave me a lot of reassurance, but now that I'm going through my second one, I feel like I'm going to stalk your page because you're right before. I mean, I didn't even realize, and only through Amanda did I realize I was going to be getting a call on certain days. And and I like texted you, our clinic, like gave us a handout kind of describing like update what it should look like and kind of like that. And 
So I like screenshot a picture and sent it to her. And I was like, this is all I have, but I hope it helps. I'm like, yeah, well, I, I, I made cute little brochures for my patients on I each like day. That. And I put like a yeah. star and I'm like, I'm going to call you this day, this day, and this day. And this is what I'm going to talk about. This is just no review. So you're not confused when I call you. Yeah. Well, that is so helpful. Like, please know that. Like, just being on this side of it, that is so beneficial. It really is. Oh, good. I'm, I, I know it is because, yeah. like, once again, you have, you don't even know what an egg looks like. Like, no, you know, I, so it's I, helpful I, to be like, this is what your eggs look like. Yeah. This is what's going to happen to them. Yeah. This is what they're going to turn into. So. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank yeah. you so much. This was so, uh, you know, insightful, helpful, and I'm excited. I hope people check out your Instagram because it will help them through this whole process and just understand things a lot more. So thank you so much for being here and just explaining all this with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And if you guys ever have like anything you're curious about or just message me or be like, you need to make a post on this girl. Cause I'm not the best at making posts. So you know, that's, that's <laughs> super helpful to know. Thank you so much, Paige. We appreciate it. It's great meeting you guys.